Hello, you're listening to a podcast from Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Radio Maria is a 24-7 Catholic radio station broadcasting online via our app, Radio Maria Play, and on DAB in an increasing number of areas. You can follow us on social media. And if you enjoy this program, please do click like and subscribe to us on your podcast provider. Radio Maria relies entirely upon listener donations. We have no other sources of funding, so please do consider supporting us with a monthly or one-off donation so that we can continue to keep providing great programming free at the point of access. To donate or find out more, visit us at radiomariaengland.uk. listening to Radio Maria and it's a very um, great privilege to be able to welcome Father Ewan Mali on the program. Hello Father Ewan Mali. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> and uh, today we're going to be pressing on with the Book of Wisdom um, with your mm-hmm. wonderful commentary and uh, having done up to chapter 5 if I remember correctly last time we're yeah. moving on to chapter 6 and hopefully chapter seven today. Yes, thank you. Well, I'll start with a little prayer in this yeah. Feast of the Cross. Book of Wisdom is the wisdom of God's Word, but not quite the wisdom of the cross, but it is implied that those who suffer for wisdom will conquer, but the victory of Christ himself over the cross is still to come. We praise your Lord in this day to trust that Goodness will prevail, the truth will prevail, and especially when it seems like evil is winning. At that point, your victory is being prepared, just as the cross seemed the end of all things and the failure, even of the divine mission of your Son. And yet, it is indeed victory, for your Son is our Lord forever. Amen. So, Last week, I say I finished chapter five of the Book of Wisdom. I will quote the the last verse of chapter five, verse twenty-three. A mighty wind will rise against them, and like a tempest, it will winnow them away. Lawlessness will lay waste the whole earth, and evil doing will overturn the thrones of rulers. Well, the grim ending. But now, chapter six turns to hope. Remember that. The Book of Wisdom is written in the persona of King Solomon. So it's supposed to be a king speaking to other kings. And the king who is venerated for his wisdom and power in ancient Israel history, but also remembers the one who fell into folly himself. Yet, wise words last even when they're spoken by someone who is not wise themselves, who do not live by that wisdom. Christ says, do what the Pharisees tell you, not what they do. So chapter 6 addresses the rulers again. Listen therefore, O kings, and understand, learn, O judges of the ends of the earth. Give ear you that rule over multitudes and boast of many nations. For your dominion was given you from the Lord and your sovereignty from the Most High. 
he will search out your works and inquire into your plans. For as the servants of his kingdom, you did not rule rightly or keep the law or walk according to the purpose of God. Now, you notice that he speaks not just to kings, but those who have many nations. Now, of course, they don't hear these words, the rulers of Rome, the great Persian Empire, China, the Far East, even rulers in Africa and Americas, which were unknown at the time in the place where this book was written. None of them hear these words, but these words are really for us to remind us that as we go out into the world, we must speak those words to those who have power. It really is the greatest example of speaking truth to power. It's a warning that you know, power itself is a gift of God. We see that in our life. Some people become very rich and powerful. They're wise, they would realise that there's a great element of luck in that richness and the powers they have. And that luck itself in our eyes and if truth isn't luck at all, but the wisdom of God. And God gives power to strange people and power itself is damaging. Power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, as the Catholic historian Lord Acton said. And yet, that's not the message of wisdom. The message of wisdom is that since you have power, you must use it as a servant. You will be judged. And even if you don't know who God is, his law will still judge you because the law is in our hearts. We understand that law in some deep way. This is the teaching of St. Paul in the first two chapters of Romans. The Gentiles have a law unto themselves. Even when they deny it, in a warning of judgment, he will come upon you terribly and swiftly because severe judgment falls on those in high places. The word terribly might be translated literally as shiveringly. You know, it's, it's a word actually in Greek which survives in a different form in English, and it's frisson in French, the idea of shaking. Also swiftly. And swiftly because God will act. And by the time the Book of Wisdom was written, even though Israel itself was occupied, it was occupied by various powers. And they'd seen these powers fall. Syria fell, Persia fell, the Greek empires of the Middle East fell. The Romans were coming in, but they too would lose power. Empires come and go, and even though for all history the Jews have been under these powers, the powers themselves have not lasted. And the other cheering word, more cheering after this grim warning, for the lowliest may be pardoned in mercy, but the mighty will be mightily tested. The more power you have, the more wealth you have, the more responsibility you have. That's Catholic social teaching. The more money you have, the more you have to use it with a view to the common good. If you have enough to live on, well, live as you can. If you have a little to spare, then you should spare it. Almsgiving is important of some sort. But if you become very rich, then you can't just hold on to that money. You can't say this is my money because great money, great sources of money inevitably affect society as a whole. You have to use it well and wisely. This is the problem of our age when the, the mega billionaires have become very powerful, at least very present in the media a lot. But 
that doesn't help us. And here, this is why Solomon's persona as a king becomes so important. He's speaking to his fellow kings. You then, O monarchs, my words are directed to you, may learn wisdom and not transgress. They were made holy who observe holy things in holiness, and those who have been taught them will find a defense. Therefore, set your desire on my words, long for them, and you will be instructed. Now, the kings aren't hearing this. This isn't really, in that sense, spoken to the kings. What it's really saying is that there is something better than power and money. There's something better than greatness in earthly terms. And it's really a way of praising wisdom. So he's saying wisdom is so valuable, so so helpful, so useful, these are words he actually uses, that it's better than wealth or power, more important. And the rich are like this, like everything that matters. So the address to the kings is a rather roundabout way of showing just how important wisdom is. That's where it changes now, it becomes the rest of this passage, chapter six and seven, a meditation in wisdom, but also more importantly, a praise of wisdom. And praise wisdom because wisdom is the most important thing to have. Behind that is the story of Solomon himself earlier on in the Bible, the story of how he was called, and he was offered wealth and power. But of course, he chose something different. He chose wisdom. Uh, shall we read that passage? Um, Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you've kept him for him this great and steadfast love, and I give him a son to sit on his throne this day. That's the first book of Kings, chapter 3, verse 2. And it says, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be count numbered or counted for as a multitude. And this is remembering that the story of Israel began with just one man, Abraham, and his many struggles going to Egypt because of the famine coming through the desert. Become a great people. And Solomon is regarded as having the largest earthly empire of at any point in the history of Israel because his empire was united. His sons would fail and it would be divided after him when he died. But here's the prayer. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. Time may discern between good and evil. Who is able to govern this your great people? Please the Lord that Solomon had asked it, and God said to him, Because you have asked it, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, ask for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honour, that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. <laughs> this is not true, because God speaks to us in dreams sometimes, and certainly speaks to the people of the Old Testament. So, the Book of Wisdom has this passage in mind all the time. You could almost say, I think, would say that the 
biblical wisdom in effect is an expansion of this passage. We go back to the passage then. The praise of wisdom. The lowliest may be pardoned in mercy, but the mighty will be mightily tested or judged. The Lord will not stand in awe of anyone or show deference to greatness. I should say one of the issues about Book of Wisdom being Greek is whether it's really scripture and why isn't it the New Testament? Well, it's not direct quotes, but the Lord does not stand in awe of anyone. That's something said in the New Testament by Paul. God is not a fearer of faces. The language, individual words in this passage we're reading today, actually, many of the words occurred in the New Testament with very similar meanings, except perhaps deepened by knowing Christ. So, wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, I got glad we asked that question because the Book of Wisdom says, I will tell you what wisdom is and how she came to be. Thou hide no secrets for you, I will trace her course from the beginning of creation and make knowledge of her clear, I will not pass by the truth. Thou will I travel in the company of sickly envy, for envy does not associate with wisdom. The multitude of the wise, the salvation of the world, and a sensible king is the ability of any people. If it be instructed by him, why words, and you will profit. That's your revised standard version. Stability of any people, perhaps the safety of the people, or the good foundation of the people. But also, there's always that sense that it's not just for the king, and very importantly, not just for the king's particular people. It's about the world. The multitude of the wise is the salvation of the world. You cannot have a good world without good countries, good cities, good villages, families, good streets. You know, sometimes, I think in Tennessee, we may see that many of the wars that started, started with neighbours fighting with each other over a garden fence or something or a tree, and it can escalate. We have to be always remembering that However smaller life is, we do not know what effect it has. We have to be wise in the life we have for the sake of the world. It's always for the sake of the world. So the multitude of the wise isn't saying big conglomerations of people, but rather the many people who are wise in many places. The wisdom itself is no truck with envy, which is, you think about it, the source of all wars and all conflicts wanting something that someone else has. Come to chapter 7 then. Here it becomes more directly autobiographical, not the way you'd expect. It doesn't really give you details about Solomon's life, but rather the nature of his life is typical of any life. This chapter 7, to my mind, is the most beautiful chapter in the Old Testament possible exception of the beginning, Genesis itself. Wisdom 7, I also am mortal, like everyone else, a descendant of the first formed child of the earth, and in the womb of a mother I was moulded into flesh in the period of ten months, compacted with blood from the seed of a man and the pleasures of marriage. And I was born, I began to breathe the common air and fell upon the kindred earth. My first sound was a cry, as is true of all. So I'll look at that passage, but consider the translation that 
maybe time for some music. Thank you so much, Father. I'm looking forward to um, hearing about this uh, most beautiful chapter that you have mentioned. We're going to listen to a song called Hail King. Um, it's written by Joel Clarkson and sung by Joel and Joy Clarkson. i 
You're listening to Radio Mirror. That was Hail King by Joel Clarkson, sung by Joel and Joy Clarkson. We go back to Father Ewan. Over to you, Father. Okay, we're back to chapter 7. And the passage I read it as said is, it's, it's rather difficult to translate. It's a strange language. But basically, it's trying to stress the humanity of Solomon as a king. And because he almost seems like a superhuman figure, his divine wisdom in him is he's mighty. It says, you know, but every human being is the same. I am mortal. I will die. Descendant of the first formed child of earth, or like you say, earth formed. The child word is perhaps too human there. It's a back to Adam being taken from the ground. Adam in Hebrew is a word that sounds very like a Hebrew word for ground, so it's a sort of pun there. The womb of a mother was moulded into flesh, saying, unlike Adam, I was born in the womb of a mother, in the period of 10 months. A little puzzling that, you know, we usually say nine months, but uh, possibly there was some dispute, or possibly it's the idea of uh, eight months with parts of other months counts as 10 months. Certainly nine months would be standard in the ancient world, uh, with Christians. There's a very good theory that December 25th is based on March the 25th, the Annunciation, rather than the other way around. So, ten months anyway, compacted with blood from the seed of a man and the pleasure of marriage. Greek slightly more derogatory there, I think. I'll go back to it. Um, actually said in the sleep of pleasure coming together, or the, which is hard to translate, but uh, certainly says pleasure. Sleep, well, not really sleep, but um, really just the idea is that uh, in a sense people aren't intending children very often when children are conceived, but even if they want children, they don't know what child they will have, they certainly don't expect what will come, and children are always a surprise. But there's a strange thing that Solomon will say about his birth later, where he seems to describe himself as in some ways um, free from sin when they arrived, but then they came into flesh. That's a rather difficult passage, but uh, we may not have time to talk about that. Certainly as part of the idea of Solomon is in some ways a sort of superhuman He's not just an ordinary human, but he is born in the flesh, and the flesh makes us human. The weakness of the flesh, the need to be caring for each other because we hunger, we thirst, we grow tired. And none of us can really support himself on their own. And the way of saying that is talking about himself as a child. When I was born, I began to breathe the common air and fell upon the kindred earth. My first sound was a cry. This is true of all. I was nursed with care and swaddling clothes. But no king has had a different beginning of existence. There is for all one entrance into life and one way out. I might say the, the words for entrance and way out are esodos and exodus, which of course is exodus, which is itself the description of coming out of Egypt. But then the baptism, which is you often thinks of the Going through the Red Sea is a symbol of baptism. You know, you go into the sea and come out again. So one entrance into life and one way out. 
and no king is different. Stress on humanity. Um, I breathed the common air. I fell upon the kindred earth. So air and earth, the two things that support us, come from the earth, but also the earth provides the food. And the Greek, I think, there is could be uh, could be better said. It's the common air which I didn't so much breathe as pulled into myself. I think it's the image of the, the baby's gasp, and the crying. My mother, who is children's nurse, but not full nurse, but she'd been at many births, and she says uh, it's always a tense moment when a baby's born when they wait for the baby to start crying, because crying is actually a sign that they're breathing. So you know, one cry for all. And the word he describes for earth, rather than common earth, it's commonly suffering or commonly affected. The idea that the earth itself is something that is, is shaped, controlled by human beings, can also be destroyed by things. It depends on the rain to stay healthy, to stay fertile. Earthquakes can tear the soil apart, dry spells, or floods can wash the earth away. The earth is vulnerable. And coming from the earth is a sign of our vulnerability. And we all depend on the same earth, but also the earth in a way depends on us, how we use it. There's a theme in the book of Deuteronomy about not destroying the trees when you attack an enemy, because the trees are part of the life that we must preserve. So crying first the same voice as all, as literally says. Our first voice, we cried, and the word crying is certainly there. And I was brought up in swaddling crows, and back to get it here. It says I was nursed with care in swaddling clothes, but it could be I was nursed in swaddling clothes and care, care in the sense of worry or thoughts about things. Vulnerability. And the vulnerability of the child isn't something he grows out of because we're always vulnerable and we grow old, we grow weak. And as he says, one entrance into life and one way out. So what does he do? He says, therefore I prayed and understanding was given me. I called on God and the spirit of wisdom came to me. I preferred her to scepters and thrones and I counted wealth as nothing in comparison with her. I did like her to any priceless gem because all gold is but a little sand in her sight. And silver will be accounted as clay before her. Once again, the images of the earth is weakness and vulnerability. Even gold and silver that seem so strong and splendid are nothing compared to wisdom. And wisdom alone is immortal. Wisdom alone is a thing that passes from age to age and remains. I loved her more than health and beauty and I chose to have her rather than light because her radiance never ceases. All good things came to me along with her and in her hand uncounted wealth. I rejoiced them all because wisdom leads them, but they did not know that she was their mother. So the first hint of what's not forgotten is that Solomon loses his wisdom at the end, marries his many wives and worships foreign gods. But it was believed in this in the tradition, in the church tradition, that does repent at the end and is forgiven. Now, the one question we ask is, she, why do we say she? Is it because the word is feminine? It's a feminine word in Greek and Latin. 
and Hebrew. That doesn't always work. It's the three languages we deal with. Spirit is neuter in Greek, feminine in Hebrew, and masculine in Latin, but you can't infer too much from that. However, behind this is probably the idea that wisdom is best imagined as a sort of woman you may choose to follow. And that's a very universal view. You'll find that in Greek culture. You'll find it Plato. Uh, story attributed to the Greek sophist by Plato Prodicus, who tells the story that Her Heracles has to choose between two women. One who, shall we say, is a bit loose in her life, and another who's very stately. This idea of wisdom of women survives in Christianity through Boethius's great book on the constellation of philosophy, where wisdom appears to as a woman who is dressed in grey, who is wise but also quite virginal. And she drives away all the false things that Boethius has been looking for, who are also personified as women, but as I say, shall we say a loose woman? Let's not go any further than that. So there's an image there. I wouldn't say that's too developed, but there's a more interesting thing in the Book of Wisdom that the idea of wisdom is something that is eternal. And that's been a problem or a source of interest to many Christians. Famous Russian Christian philosopher, or eccentric Christian Soloviev, claimed to have a vision of wisdom. And uh, of all places, I'm right, I think it was in Loch Lomond in Scotland. He's Russian, but he was part traveling. And uh, or Greek Orthodoxy sometimes is this idea of wisdom as a genuine person. Not the Holy Spirit, but also an issue, even though obviously, of course, the Holy Spirit is a source of wisdom. But this image of somebody that will teach you might sound kind of feminist, but because the downside of that is it's usually a man who's choosing between these two types of women. So it's a man speaking. And it's interesting that Alfred the Great translated Boethius, but he turns wisdom into a man. Ralph Sternman, who just shouts a lot at the Boethius. So, you know, there's a lot behind this. The basic thing is that the feminine image is here, and it's not just grammar. It's meant to be an idea, a personification of what you seek. And of course, Solomon chose many wives, so that was also a failure. He failed in chastity, he failed in fidelity. And Solomon himself probably comes an image of the wrongness of polygamy, what he's remembered for. But by the time of Christ, and it's taught, clearly taught by Christ that a man and woman become one flesh, it must be a person-to-person -person encounter. Polygamy isn't true marriage. So we're going again about the descriptions of wisdom. We in our world, our words are in his hand as, as God's hands. He who gave me an erring knowledge of what existed or the structure of the world and the activity of the elements. I said last week you find an interest in science, what we would call science. The science itself is part of the greater pursuit of wisdom. Knowing how the world works is also knowing that the world isn't everything. That the world changes, but the changes of the world are in God's hands. So he says the beginning and end and middle of times, the alternations of the solstices and the changes of the seasons, the cycles of the year and the constellation of the stars, the natures of animals, tempers of wild animals, the powers of spirits, the thoughts of human beings, the variety of 
plants and the virtues of roots I learn both what is secret and what is manifest. He learns all that not for the sake of these things in themselves, but for the sake of understanding that there is something greater. Now, all these changes are in God's hands, just as the heart of the king is in God's hands. The changeability of the world is interesting and makes science possible, the fact that things change. But the most interesting thing about the changing nature of reality is implies an unchanging nature behind that, which is God. So, time for a bit more music, I think, and then I'll read my favourite passage. Indeed. I'm very much looking forward to that. This is um, uh, Ister Confessor by the Sixteen.
listening to Radio Maria. That was Easter Confessor. And uh, Father Ewan's going to take up take us up to the hour with um, the rest of this reflection on the Book of Wisdom. So now we have a famous passage to many. I'm sure many want some recognition of this, his description of wisdom with many adjectives, as you will hear. From wisdom, the fashioner of all things taught me. There is in her a spirit that is intelligent, holy, unique, manifold, subtle, mobile, clear, unpolluted, distinct, and vulnerable, loving the good, keen, irresistible, beneficent, humane, steadfast, sure, free from anxiety, all-powerful, overseeing all and penetrating through all spirits that are intelligent, pure, altogether subtle. Wisdom is more mobile than any emotion because of her pureness she pervades and penetrates all things. Well, that's a lot of adjectives and I can't get through them all, but um, I think the one that gets developed is the word mobile, which might seem like the least intelligible or the oddest adjective. Mobile doesn't sound like a, a great compliment. But mobile is actually, behind this is a platonic idea or a platonic puzzle. Plato discusses whether thinking is a sort of movement. Thomas Aquinas, interestingly, is aware of this, but he also is not certain, but he says, oh, things move. But you can see the point that, in a way, thinking is a sort of movement. You go from one thought to another. And Aristotle also defines life in terms of, of movement. He says, plants move by growing, animals need to eat, so they move around. Human beings can move with their minds because we can go beyond the horizons. We can think of the past, the future. We can imagine places we're not in. In that sense, mind is also movement, reaching out. Prayer, in that sense, is a great movement. It reaches into purgatory. It goes up to heaven goes through the world, we pray for those we have known in the past, and we pray for our future. So prayer is way great, the great sort of way of moving. What people understand about why monasteries, why we just stay in one place all the time. But I'm praying for all places and all times. We're reaching out from the one place. This is just where we stand, where we go, is where our prayers go. So more mobile than any motion, because of pureness, it pervades and penetrates all things. It reaches out. She's a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the mighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gives entrance into her. She's a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God and an image of his goodness. Now, that's a passage which is very reminiscent, or rather, the passage I'm going to quote is very reminiscent of this, which is the letter to Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. Driving Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you notice purification, which is in the list of, you know, she is pure. Radiance of the glory of God, very odd word, but very unusual word, but the same word in Hebrews and wisdom. Apogasma, which means shining out from. Does that make Christ wisdom? 
well, it might be a little complicated with the gender thing, but bear in mind wisdom itself is dependent on God. There is in her a spirit that is intelligent, holy. So wisdom, spirit of wisdom has a spirit of wisdom in her. So she's not, she's not God, uh, but rather she's some image of what God does. There is in her a thinking spirit, holy, born alone, many, many parts, follow Mary's, that's also very, very like, um, the word in Hebrew is the very first verse which says, in many parts God spoke. Um, so, we could say that Christ in the Shemaiety receives wisdom, always take the incarnation seriously, as a human being he receives wisdom. As God, he is wisdom, and the wisdom that Solomon is thinking of is the personification of that wisdom as a way of thinking that just as the first source of wisdom for most people is her mother, the most influential person in their life for most people, the beginning, as Solomon says, of his life, he was born in the womb. So wisdom, in a sense, is always with us and always caring for us. And it's compassionate and passionate, emotional in a way, joyous, loving, also a, sometimes a stern teacher. You know, the stuff your mother doesn't allow you to get away with, your father might, but uh, that's why mothers always say to fathers, well, you talk to him. I have to tell them to, you know, do their job. So there's all these images, but the important thing is that, you know, there is behind this a sense of a wisdom that God gives to the creation. And because it's in creation, it's also creating things. Absolute wisdom is God himself, but the wisdom in creation is the ongoing nature of creation. That's why he gives you all these descriptions of the thing that God made, things that exist. Because this great hymn began to wisdom, says, wisdom, the fashioner of all things taught me. So that's a bit complicated, difficult to say exactly how that means, but there is a created wisdom because wisdom is creating things wisely. She is more beautiful than the sun and excels every constellation of the stars. So having seen the great things of creation, there's something better. Compared with the light, she is found to be superior, superior if it's succeeded by night, but against wisdom, evil does not prevail. That's why I quoted the end of chapter 5 at the beginning. Lawlessness will lay waste the whole earth, and evil doing will overturn the thrones of rulers. Evil will destroy, but against wisdom, evil will not prevail. And this is our hope. So we'll end there, and pray that we all have more wisdom in our lives. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Ewan. Looking forward to having you again next week, same time.